One of the most important questions any Christian could ask is, How in the world can I be holy? The difficulty, of course, with asking this very important question is often the variety of answers that you're given. It seems that as many Christians as you might talk with, there might be as many representative theories about our sanctification. You ask 25 Christians, what is the biblical path for sanctification? And you might receive 25 different answers. Well, for the Apostle Peter's answer to that question, I want you to look with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13 and moving throughout the rest of the chapter. You follow along as I read. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart." For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. After giving us great instruction on the doctrine of salvation in verses 1 to 12, Peter now wants to give us some instruction about our holiness, our sanctification. Having shown us in verses 1 to 12 about our election to grace through glorification even stopping to describe how the Old Testament prophets and even the holy angels long to look into the matter of our salvation as human beings, Peter now wants to camp out on the present aspect of our lives, and that is our holiness, our present salvation experience. You remember... Last Lord's Day, I said to you that salvation can be seen in the Bible in three distinct phases. There is a past tense to our salvation, that is, that we were saved at a point in time. There is also a sense in which our salvation is yet to come. It is future to us, that is, our glorification. And there is, of course, our salvation in the present tense... And that is what Peter wants to occupy in our minds in verses 13 to 25 of chapter 1. He's all about in this section challenging us 
commanding us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To be conformed to God's character. To be set apart to mirror the very life of Jesus in our own lives. Now we're going to look at a number of essential components or characteristics or elements to our sanctification in these verses. And it's going to take us a while to work our way through them because there is so much rich ministry of teaching in this beautiful text. But I at least this morning want to introduce to you the subject of the doctrine of sanctification as Peter expounds it to us here. In verses 13 to 16, for instance, Peter tells us about the first of one of these major elements of our sanctification. And I want to give it to you this morning so that you might be able to write it down on a piece of paper and to be able to mull it over and meditate upon it all of this week. And then as we pick it up next time, Lord willing, you'll be able to have it so freshly in your mind that you'll be able to see clearly what Peter's first element, first point, first component is regarding our sanctification. And it is this. The principle from verse 13 that Peter wants us to know about our sanctification is as follows. Focus your mind on the hope of being brought to full conformity to the character of God. I'll say it again. Focus your mind, Peter wants from us, on the hope, the hope of being brought to full conformity to the character of God. You see it there? He says, therefore, in verse 13, and by the way, that therefore is there for the purpose of linking the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of sanctification forever together. There is no undue separation between these two doctrines. The doctrine of our election, our salvation, uh, the doctrine of our sanctification and the doctrine of our glorification are all to be seen in the same Christian package. It's the same theological truth given to us in different ways, but it's all talking about our salvation. And that's why he says, therefore, linking up all that has been said in the first 12 verses. It's almost as though Peter is saying, as a result of what I've just told you about your election, about your sanctification by the work of the Spirit, about your obedience to Jesus Christ, about the great mercy that God has given you, about an inheritance that will not fade away, about the protecting power of God, about the trials in your life that add the proof of your faith, which is precious, more precious than gold. It is as though he's saying that even in the midst of your great faith, which you rejoice in because it gives you a belief and a hope in God, it's almost as though he's telling us that all of the salvation for which even the prophets and the holy angels long to look as a result of all of those things, I want you to see why it matters right now in your life. This is why it matters. This is why the truth needs to be screwed into our minds so that we understand how to live presently in Christ. All of the things that he said up to this point are a preamble, a theological preamble for what you and I need to know about our Christianity in the here and now. So he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. All of that 
is to tell us that we are to focus our mind on the hope that we have on the person of God and the hope that will come to us one day when we will be fully like God in our character, will reflect His own character. By the way, the main verb of verse 13 is that phrase, fix your hope completely. Even though it occurs later on in the sentence, that's the main verb. That's the action word. That's the main command. We're to fix our hope. And how does Peter begin to inform us about this hope that we're to have completely fixed? Well, he tells us that our hope on the reality that one day we will be brought as Christians to the fullest state of salvation possible when Jesus Christ returns by fixing our hope completely. That's one phrase. Fix your hope completely. One idea, one command. What he's really doing is he's focusing on the goal of our salvation. This is it. This is our complete or final state of being. To have our hope completely fixed on the grace, talking about salvation, to be brought to you at the consummation, at the revelation, at the final time, in the last times of your days on earth. And it is none other than the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what he's really telling us to do? He's saying if you want to know about your sanctification, if you want to know how to live a holy life, if you want to know how to live set apart to God in sanctification and honor and holiness, the very first point is to focus your mind on the hope that one day God will transform you into the very character of God the Father. Amazing statement. Amazing. You remember how the Apostle Paul essentially said the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. There he says this, For our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, it's not as though we live completely in heaven. Uh, that's where our citizenship is. We know we're living in our physical bodies and in our minds here on earth. We know that. But he says, in reality, our real citizenship, where we're headed, there's the goal, there's the end product. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I thought you said we're already saved. We are. But we're also waiting for our Savior. We're saved now. We have been saved. And we're also waiting for our salvation. The final consummation of it. And he goes on to say in verse 21, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, will transform the body of our humble state. That which keeps us down here. That which helps to ground us in the here and now. He'll one day in our humble state, conform us with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. In other words, He's in charge. He's the Lord. And when the Lord will one day come, or when we come to Him, He will subject all things to Himself, including our own physical body, and somehow, miraculously and instantaneously, He will transform that physical body, including our minds, into the very character of God Himself, into the very person of Jesus Christ, because all things will one day be subjected to Him, because He's Lord of all. That's Paul's words. And those are Peter's words. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. You say, well, I already thought grace had been brought to me. It has, but not yet in its fullness. It's coming. Aren't you waiting for that day? I'm waiting for that day so that I don't have to wonder if I'm going to make it in an airplane. I wonder if I'm going to make it in fact, just this week we had a bit of a harrowing experience. It was on 
Wednesday afternoon, I had six, I believe, of my own children and uh, one other child of one of our church family members. And we were driving somewhere. We were on Markham Avenue, about a half a mile, I guess, from the state capitol. And we were all going somewhere, and we were driving along, and I was in our big blue Ford club wagon that so many people mistake for a church shuttle bus. And as we were driving along, probably about 45 miles an hour there, we were coming up on some a guardrail and some trees that went down to a, into a declined area next to a, a creek and then a bridge that we were coming up upon. And all of a sudden, without warning, completely unannounced, the side glass door of our sliding door immediately shattered. And all of the glass went into the van and struck several of our kids on the side of the face. And there wasn't any time to do a lot of reaction. There wasn't any time to do a lot of anything else other than just to slow the van down. And immediately my thought was someone has shot a a bullet through the window from the bridge or from some other location. The first thing I thought of was to look behind me and not necessarily even to see who was cut, but to see who behind me might have a bullet lodged in their temple or to be somehow hurt very badly, maybe even killed. And so I began to list off all of the names of all the kids in the van. Are you there? Can you hear me? Talk to me. Everyone, tell me your name. Everyone told me their name and everyone was very shaken. Some of the girls were crying. And the first opportunity I had to pull over into a parking lot, I stopped the van and I realized everybody was okay and everybody had glass all over them and there were maybe a minor cut or two and I put it in park and I went around and I put my own hand really not even thinking what I myself was doing and cut my hand a little bit. Didn't really see anything inside the van that looked like an object, a bullet, anything that I could see that that might be in there that would give evidence of what happened. I didn't know if there had been a ricochet or something, but the glass itself had just shattered into a million pieces with something that was very, very heavy force upon it. So I immediately called 911, and a little while later, we saw someone walking into that very same area and walked across the street and into a liquor store. And then we watched this person walk back across the street and back up the sidewalk and then go across the guardrail down into that area. And I thought, well, maybe someone like that had done that. And so I told the policeman when he came, and he said, yes, we've been having some problem with some vagrants in that area. I'll go and I'll check it out. And he went. He saw exactly where the glass had come out of the van. Some of it had fallen onto the the road. And he came back and said, I saw also what were the remains of a big brick that had gone through the window and shattered it. Of course, going that high rate of speed, it just took something that large and uh, the impact to shatter that glass. And he said, I couldn't see anyone. I don't know who did it. So it doesn't appear as though we're going to be able to find out who perpetrated this. And so he took down my report and I then called my wife and she came and we shuttled uh, the kids to where they needed to go. And I took the van back. And one of the things as we were waiting for the policeman that I told our children was, I want you to know something. I want everyone to listen to what I have to say. At any one point in our lives, we could be alive one moment and dead the next. And every one of you needs to ask the question, where am I in relation to God? Am I saved? Do I have deliverance from my sin? Do I know Jesus Christ? For us, if we'd all knew Christ... And that was really a bullet and we crashed and everyone was killed. Would we all be ushered into the very presence of Jesus Christ? We had a a good chat about knowing Christ and what it means to live for God. And what it means to have one breath and then to have God by His providence take that breath away. I thought a lot about that this week when I was looking over this passage, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That might have been my and other people in that van. It might have been our revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Not the one that's being referred to here, because that's when Christ will come back for His people, but the one in which people who die before Christ returns are ushered into His presence. Are you ready? Do you have your hope fixed completely on the grace of salvation? That's your hope? Do you know that truth? Do you have that fixed in your mind? By the way, that word hope is confident expectation. Do you have the confident expectation that if God were to take you at a moment in time, without any warning, would you have this hope? The complete hope, complete confidence, complete expectation of the grace of God, the salvation that He's just been talking about for these 12 verses. The hope that conforms us to Christ-likeness. And by the way, notice what he says. If it is referring, and I think it is at the end of verse 13, referring to the future coming of Christ, he is combining two ideas in this one verse. He's talking about the sanctification in the here and now, and he's talking about the glorification in the there and then. But you have to be ready in the here and now to experience the there and then. You see? The revelation of Jesus Christ, that's going to come in the future, but you have to be ready now because the future could be today. The future could be today for any one of us. Either our going to Him or His coming back, even today. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Your confident expectation is in the return of Christ. Peter says, that's the key. That's the key to your holiness. You live in light of the second coming of Christ. You live in light of His return. You live in light of the fact that Christ could come for you at any moment or that you could go to Him to give an account. That's why he says in verse 21, "...who through Him, through Christ, are believers in God..." And what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Him? That He raised Christ from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Oh, it might have been sad and some people might even use the word tragic if we had in fact crashed, we'd been killed. But our faith and hope are in God. And God would have delivered us from the domain of darkness and would give, had, have given us the salvation that is in Christ. And we would have give, given an account and said, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. But see, if you're going to be holy in this world, you need to fix your confident expectation that as God has raised and glorified His Son, Jesus Christ, He will also send this same Jesus Christ again to this earth to gather those who believe in Him who have been brought into full conformity unto His likeness. That's the goal. See, Peter isn't, he doesn't talk first about the steps toward the goal. His first point is the goal. Look at the goal. What's the result? The finish line. The end. You're not going to be sanctified if you don't have this confident expectation. That's why the doctrinal teaching about the second coming of Christ is non-negotiable. You must believe that Jesus Christ is who He is and that He will come again as He says. You must believe that in order to be a Christian. Now the timing of it the extent of it, and all of the other matters that are particular to His coming may be negotiable as Christians look at the Word and try to understand it correctly. But no one disagrees who is a Christian in the soon coming glory of Jesus Christ, His revelation. He will come again. That's our hope, and we must fix our hope completely on that. But it's interesting. Peter goes on to tell us exactly how to fix your hope completely. Notice, and that's why I say focus your mind on that hope, because look what he says in verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. That's a participle. 
that is modifying the main verb. It's almost as though Peter is saying it this way, even though you can't necessarily see it come out in the English text as it is written in most of our translations. It's fix your hope completely on the grace, and by doing that, or on the basis of how you do that, is by preparing your mind for action. You know what he's saying? The Christian life, holiness, sanctification is an issue of the mind. You don't shut off your brain when you come to Christ. In fact, you ratchet it up. God illumines your mind. And He says, prepare your mind for action. It's, a, it's an absolutely participial command in a punctiliar fashion. Prepare your mind. It's just a short staccato command. Prepare your mind. Clear command, concise, nothing much other than what it says. Prepare your mind for action. That's how you fix your hope completely on God's grace, His final grace to you. By the way, it's very interesting, this phrase, prepare your mind. Literally translated, it is this, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't talk like that today, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. First of all, someone might say, what does gird mean? That's a strange word. And then someone says, what is loins? And we don't want to go into all that loins means, but one thing we do want to talk about is that in an Old Testament context, in a New Testament arena, what this meant was very, very important. Because in the dress of that day, they would wear, even the men, long robes that they would come down, in some cases, even to their ankles. Even the men. And when someone was preparing themselves for action, maybe some kind of strenuous activity, maybe an issue of, of war, uh, some kind of battle, they would take that robe and they would bend down and they would gather the robe at the bottom and they would pull it up and all of that material they would begin to place underneath their belt, wrap it around and tie it tightly so that they can run quickly. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. Pull up your robe, tie it tightly so that you can be ready for action. Prepare. Pull it up, put it together, tighten it down, and run. That's what he's saying. This is action time. And do you see the connection between the mind and the behavior? Prepare your mind for action. You have to have both. In fact, you can't. It's an impossibility, according to the Word of God, to have behavior that isn't preceded by your mind. You can't. Everything you do in your Christian life is as a direct result of your thinking. Now, you may not always realize it. You may not always be able to pinpoint exactly what your thinking was in the behavior of your life. But if you were to begin to analyze what you're doing, to think through your actions, your behavior, the more you think it through, the more you spend time preparing your mind, you will begin to see exactly why you do what you do in the behavior of your life. And Peter says, think about what you're doing. If there's one phrase that is probably the most commonly uttered phrase in my household is that. Think about what you're doing. Think of the implications of your actions. Think about how you're serving or not serving. Think about what you're doing or not doing. Think, think about how you're loving or not loving. Think about what you are as a person before God. Think, 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 and then your behavior will follow after. We don't know exactly what Peter is referring to, but we do know this. There was suffering going on. There was persecution. And obviously, if there were people who were after your life, people who were ready to kill you, if you were walking down a road to try to go from one town to the other, there might be someone who might be a robber just out for your money or someone who said, there's one of those Christians. Grab him. Slay her. Prepare your minds for action. It's a strenuous warfare. And he says, you must be ready at all times. Be ready mentally for the action of the Christian life. You never know when your life's journey will require you to respond with spiritual strength and courage. 
Even Jesus said that. He said about the the ten young virgins, didn't He, in Matthew 25, five were prepared and five were unprepared. And when the five unprepared did not have their lamps and the oil in their lamps ready, it says the bridegroom came and the five were unprepared. They were sleeping. They were sluggish. The other five were prepared. They had their oil ready. The lamp was on. They went into the house with the bridegroom. And it says in the most sorrowful words in the whole Bible, and the door was shut. And then the five who were unprepared said, Open to us! And the call from inside, You weren't prepared. Prepare. Jesus even says in Luke 12, verses 35 to 38, Be ready. Be prepared. Blessed is the servant who's prepared. You have to be ready. This week... As I was meditating on this very passage, prepare your minds for action as a, as a way to describe the hope that you must fix completely on the grace of God's final and ultimate salvation. I picked up this week, out of all places, Walmart, the book Let's Roll by Lisa Beamer. Just out, just talking earlier this morning with Bob Lapine, the Family Life Today broadcast has had an interview with her that's going to be coming. And as I picked up this brand new book, I heard of the very words about which I was meditating that came to life. We know, of course, that just in a few short weeks we're going to experience the year anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center Towers, attack on America. And this, I think, is a metaphor for the spiritual battle that we see before us in the Christian life. This is a lengthy quotation, but I want to read it to you because it talks about the very thing. It's extremely illustrative, and as you hear this, I want you to think, especially as the next couple of weeks unfold, and you watch the television, and you watch all of the memorial services, and all the ceremonial things, and all of the issues before us, I want you to think about Lisa and Todd Beamer. They're graduates of Wheaton College, 1991, professing believers in Christ, Bob said they had a sweet time of fellowship with her. She's a genuine lover of the Lord. She says this, Friday evening around 9 o'clock, the house was once again filled with friends and relatives when I received a call from Nick Leonard, our family liaison with United Airlines. Crash had already occurred. She knew then that Todd, her husband, was dead. Lisa, I have some information for you, Nick said, but you might want to go to a quiet place before I tell you. I motioned to my brother Paul, and we went upstairs to my bedroom and took Nick's call there. Slowly and carefully, Nick began to give me the news. I could tell he wasn't sure how I was going to take it. Lisa, the FBI has released information that Todd did make a phone call from the flight. He called on the GTE airphone air, uh, aboard the plane, and the call went to an operator in the Chicago area. The FBI has been keeping the information private until they've had an opportunity to review the material, but now they've released it. By the time Nick finished telling me the content of Todd's call, I was in tears. The information confirmed to me that Todd was who he was right to the very end of his life. It was a tremendous comfort to know that in his last moments, his faith in God remained strong, and his love for us, his family, was at the forefront of his thoughts. I was glad to know that Todd felt he had some control of his destiny, that he might be able to effect change even to the end. The words, let's roll, were especially significant to me. Just hearing that made me smile, partially because it was so Todd but also because it showed he felt he could do something positive in the midst of a crisis situation. Of course, his final, I love you, will live with me forever. If you'd like to talk with the operator, she said it would be okay to call her, Nick told me. Yes, I would love to talk with her. Nick gave me the telephone number where I could reach Lisa Jefferson, the last person known to have spoken with my husband. She goes on to say, in very clear and I think marvelous terms that illustrate exactly what I'm talking about this morning, these words. Lisa Jefferson was at work at GTE Airphone Customer Care Center in Oak Brook, Illinois, a Chicago suburb, when she first heard news of the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, D.C. 
a supervisor with more than 18 years of experience at her job. She came out of her house, or excuse me, her office to get more information. Just then, at about 8.45 a.m. Central Time, 9.45 Eastern Time, the operator at Station 15 received an urgent call. The operator signaled for Lisa's assistance. She told me she had a real hijacking situation on her line. I asked her what airline and the flight number. She told me it was United Flight 93. She appeared to be traumatized, so I told her I would take over. When I took over the call, there was a gentleman on the phone. He was very calm and soft-spoken. I introduced myself to him as Mrs. Jefferson and told him, I understand this plane is being hijacked. Can you please give me detailed information as to what is going on? Then Lisa began going through her GTE distress call manual, asking questions such as, How many people are on board? How many hijackers? Are they armed? Are there any children on board? The man answered Lisa Jefferson in an equally calm manner. He was sitting next to a flight attendant who helped him relay the information. Twenty-seven passengers in coach, ten in first class, five flight attendants, and no children that he could see. He told me that three people had taken over the plane, said Lisa, two with knives and one with a bomb strapped around his waist with a red belt. The two with knives had locked themselves into the cockpit. They ordered everyone to sit down as the flight attendants were still standing. One of the flight attendants just happened to sit next to Todd in the back of the plane. The hijacker with the bomb pulled the curtain that divided first class from coach so the passengers in the back couldn't see what was going on. But Todd did see two people on the floor. He couldn't tell if they were dead or alive, said Lisa. The flight attendant told him she was pretty sure it was the pilot and co-pilot. I asked the caller's name and he told me, Todd Beamer. He told me he was from Cranberry, New Jersey. She later says, unlike the passengers aboard the other hijacked flights on September 11th, the passengers aboard Flight 93 had been given an unlikely gift, the inconvenience and delay caused by the traffic jam on Newark's runways. Think about that the next time you have a delay. Which had provided them with both time and information. The passengers dared not sit back idly while the plane streaked toward another national landmark. Better to make some attempt to recapture the cockpit. In the cockpit, one of the hijackers can be heard on the voice recorder telling another terrorist to let the guys in now. Presumably, the other two hijackers, the role of the fourth has never been ascertained, sensed that the passengers were becoming more difficult to control and retreated to the cockpit area. One of the hijackers in the cockpit bay began to pray. Then the hijackers discussed using an axe whose sole purpose was to break the glass around the fire extinguisher in case of fire in the cockpit to subdue the passengers. Instead, they turned off the autopilot and rocked the jet, probably in an attempt to send any would-be attackers reeling. Lisa Jefferson indicated to me that at several points during their 15-minute phone call, Todd put the phone down, moved around the plane to talk with other passengers, and then returned to their conversation Lisa told me, if I'd known it was a real hijacking, I'd have thought it was a crank call because Todd was so rational and methodical about what he was doing. She told me of Todd's involvement in the counterattack and the message that Todd had asked her to convey to me. She recalled, Todd asked me, in case I don't make it through this, would you please call my family and let them know how much I love them? I promised him I would do that. He told me that he had two boys, David and Andrew, and said his wife was also expecting another baby in January. After that, the plane took another dive and began flying erratically. There was another outburst, and I could tell in Todd's voice that he was feeling nervous but still calm. And when the plane jolted, Todd shouted, Oh, God! Then he said, Lisa! I would not given him my name as I would introduced myself as Mrs. Jefferson. And I said, Yes! And he said, Oh, that's my wife's name. And I said, that's my name too, Todd. Then he asked me if he didn't make it, would I keep that promise and find his wife and children and let them know he loved his family very much. He even gave me his home phone number. When the plane was flying in an erratic fashion, he thought he'd lost connection with me. He was hollering, Lisa, Lisa! I said, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here as long as you will. He seemed concerned about losing the connection and just wanted me to stay on the phone. I told him, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be right here with you. We're going to do something. I don't think we're going to get out of this thing, Todd said. I'm going to have to go out on faith. He told me they were talking about jumping the guy with the bomb. Are you sure that's what you want to do, Todd? Lisa asked. It's what we have to do, 
Todd told her. He asked me to recite the Lord's Prayer with him. Lisa said, and I did. We recited it together from start to finish. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At the conclusion of the prayer aboard Flight 93, Todd said, Jesus, help me. I knew that if Todd didn't make it, Lisa told me, he was definitely going to the right place. Although I'd never heard before of Todd reciting the Lord's Prayer in pressure situations, I wasn't surprised to hear he had quoted it. Recently, our pastor had taught a 12-week series of lessons on the Lord's Prayer. Sounds like my kind of preacher. Todd had known the prayer since childhood, but each of it, each line of it had become more special to him as he discovered how fraught with meaning it really was. At the close of the series, the pastor passed out the Lord's Prayer bookmarks and Todd had his in a book he had been reading in Rome the week before. Part of the prayer that intrigued Todd was the line in which Jesus taught us to ask God to forgive our trespasses, our trespasses or sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. When Lisa told me Todd had prayed that particular prayer, I felt certain that in some way Todd was forgiving the terrorists for what they were doing. Following the prayer, Todd recited the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Other men apparently joined in with him or recited the psalm themselves. Interestingly, Psalm 23 wasn't a mantra Todd recited often, but it was resident in his spirit because he had learned it as a child. Isn't that great? Be able to teach your children the Word of God from the earliest days. When the crisis came, Todd was able to tap into a deep reservoir of faith that he'd been storing up for years. Lisa Jefferson recalls after that, he had a sigh in his voice and he took a deep breath. He was still holding the phone, but I could tell he'd turned away from the phone and was talking to someone else. He said, are you ready? Okay, let's roll. Just what they were doing or how they were doing it may never be completely known. The cockpit voice recorder contains sounds of dishes shattering and other objects being hurled. The hijackers are heard screaming at each other to hold the cockpit door. Someone cries out in English, let's get them. One of the hijackers frantically attempts to cut off the oxygen in order to quell the passenger's fight. Another of the terrorists tells his cohorts, take it easy. Pounding sounds on the cockpit door, a male passenger shouts, more screaming. The plane begins to dive. The hijackers shout, Allahu Akbar, God is great. Papers rustle within the cockpit as the hijackers begin fighting among themselves for the plane's controls. Give it to me, one of them commands. Too late. The plane rocks from side to side and then flips over before streaking straight down blasting a hole in the earth 50 feet deep. Thousands of gallons of burning jet fuel spray the trees, instantly scorching the tree line as though a raging forest fire has recently been put out. The airplane is obliterated. Yet United Flight 93 had not crashed into the Capitol nor had it smashed into the White House, Camp David, or any other national landmark. Instead, it crashed at 10.03 a.m. on September 11th in an open field with only a stone cabin nearby and the closest home more than a quarter of a mile away. One of my good friends, Jim Piles, associate pastor at Grace Community Church, grew up less than two miles from that location. His parents still live there to this day. They could look out their front porch and see the fire. Meanwhile, Lisa Jefferson remained on the line, waiting for Todd to come back. Hearing all the commotion on board the plane, she recalls, then it went silent. I didn't hear anything else from him. I kept the phone line open for about 15 minutes, hoping he would come back to the phone. I called his name, but he never came back to the phone. About 10 minutes later, we heard that a plane had crashed near Pittsburgh, and I knew that was his plane. It was United Flight 93. When I took off the headset that morning... I felt that in the 15 minutes we had together, Todd and I had bonded as good friends. I felt that I had made a friend for life, and I felt that I just lost a friend. I told Lisa that no doubt Todd had felt the same way. Then I thanked her for being such a rock for Todd, a comfort for him and for me, and I thanked her for the wonderful gifts she had given my family and me with the news of her conversation with Todd. When Lisa told me about Todd saying, let's roll, I had to smile. That was so Todd.
He said that? I asked her to be certain. Yes, he did. He said, are you ready? Okay, let's roll, Lisa repeated. They were Todd's last words. That's his phrase, I said. We use that phrase all the time with our boys. When they hear, let's roll, they head for the door. They know what it means, sort of, let's get ready for the next thing we're going to do. Prepare your minds for action. And Todd said, let's roll. Interestingly, Lisa told me it was a miracle that Todd's call hadn't been disconnected. Because of the enormous number of calls that day, the GTE systems overloaded and lines were being disconnected all around her as she sat at the operator station outside of Chicago talking to Todd. She kept thinking, this call is going to be dropped. Yet Todd stayed connected all the way to the end. The calls describing what happened aboard Flight 93 meant so much to me and to millions of Americans. The courageous actions of the passengers and crew reminded me that on a day when people around the world felt violated, helpless, alone, and afraid, there were still people of character, listen to this, people who in the midst of crisis dared to live to the last second with hope. Can you see it? Todd Beamer fixed his hope completely on the grace that he realized in fullness a second later. That's why Peter goes on to say in the next part of verse 13, be sober in spirit. You know what sober means? It means to be mentally aware, mentally acute, mentally ready. You know what the opposite is? Wayne Grudem says this, mentally intoxicated. Sobriety, it, it talks about drinking, doesn't it? it? talks about someone drinking alcohol. This is, this is a mental sobriety. Know what you're doing. Know what your Christian life is. Know what the Word of God says. Be able to call it from the reservoir of your mind, even as a little child, because you'll never know one day when you'll need it the most. At the section in which she talks about having to tell her children the very next day, I close with this. On Wednesday morning, September 12th, that's the next day, as you know, I got up before sunrise and prepared myself mentally and spiritually. Folks, I'm not making this up. This is what she says. She's living out the reality of 1 Peter 1. I, I, I arose to prepare myself mentally and spiritually for one of the most challenging experiences of my life, telling my children that their father would never be coming home again. I knew this was going to be a difficult day. And I wanted to talk with the boys privately before things got too hectic, especially David. Drew was only 19 months old, so I wasn't too worried about explaining to him. He was just beginning to understand when I said such things as go to the fridge and get your milk cup. David, however, was three and a half and inquisitive about everything, aren't they? When mom came downstairs, I told her what I planned to do. I forced myself to ignore 17-year-old visions of mom telling my brother Paul, Holly, and me that our father had died. It all seemed too familiar. At the same time, I drew strength from that experience, knowing that God causes all things to work together for good to those of us who love Him. See, Romans 8.28. I could already see how He was using the experience of our dad's unexpected death to help us with the loss of Todd. And I could already envision my family members being a resource for my children someday. In the chambers of my heart and mind, I could even imagine my brother Jonathan, who was nearly two when our dad died, someday sitting down with David and Drew and saying something such as, I understand what it's like to lose your dad when you're so young that you never got to know him. I felt the same way when I was growing up. Mom's voice nudged me back to the present. Do you want me to go along with you? She asked softly. No, I think I should talk to David alone. I wanted David to be focused on what I was telling him and that I and that would be tougher if my mom was with us. You see what she was doing? Preparing her own mind for the action that awaited right then. As soon as I heard David stirring, I went into his bedroom to talk with him. He was wearing his favorite Buzz Lightyear pajamas that I'd bought him a few months earlier. The pajamas brought, brought me up short when I saw them. The boys loved Buzz Lightyear from the Disney animated movie Toy Story. 
So when I found the pajamas, I couldn't pass them by. The day I purchased them, Todd had been working at home in his office while the boys were napping. I couldn't wait to show Todd my find, so I took the pajamas into his office, held them up in front of him. Look what I found! I mouthed the word silently because Todd was on a conference call with a customer. He worked for Oracle Corporation, the computer company. Todd's eyes brightened and he smiled broadly when he saw the PJs. He nodded to me and gave me a thumbs up as if to say, the guys are going to love these. Sure enough, the Buzz Lightyear pajamas were a huge hit with the boys. Now wearing his special pajamas, David wiped the sleep out of his eyes. I hugged David and nodded toward his large orange basketball beanbag on the floor. Let's sit down a minute, Big Dave. I want to talk to you. I was concerned that I communicate the awful news correctly because I knew from my mom's counseling and from our own experience following my dad's death that kids sometimes have difficulty understanding the finality of death. It's hard for them to comprehend that the person who has died won't be coming back in this life. We sat down together on the beanbag, and I held David close to, my, to me on my lap. I started by talking about airplanes. David had flown in airplanes before, and he understood what it meant to land and take off. We had flown together as a family to Orlando, and David remembered that trip better than most. He knew that Todd flew on lots of planes, too. I said, David, Daddy was flying on an airplane yesterday. And you know that most of the time airplanes are safe, but sometimes they have accidents. David looked at me as if to say, Great, Mom, why in the world are we talking about airplanes before we've even had breakfast? David, the plane that Daddy was on yesterday had an accident. And it hit the ground real hard. Everyone was hurt badly and died. I was struggling for a way to describe what it means to die. Since David had no context in which to place the experience of death, nobody he'd ever known well in his three and a half years had died. I tried to explain, when a person dies, he can't come back home and he can't call us on the phone. He can't talk to us and we can't talk to him. Because Daddy loved Jesus, he went to be with God in heaven. And you and Drew and I will be there with Daddy someday, but today we're not. But Daddy's going to be coming off the plane, right? David asked. No, not this time. I gently stressed the point that Todd wouldn't be coming back. Daddy wanted to come back, but he couldn't, I told David. He loved us, and we love him, and we can still talk about him, but Daddy won't be coming home, and we won't see him here anymore. I was trying so hard to be calm. But all the while I was praying silently, Oh God, please help me get this across to David because I don't think I can keep going back over this again and again. I was happy to answer any questions the boys might have, but I didn't want them to be searching for Todd or thinking he'd be back or they could contact him and I didn't want to have to reiterate the whole thing. David didn't cry. He didn't get angry. He just looked at me with love and trust. Isn't that what our Heavenly Father is? saying to us about the hope that is ours in Christ. I wasn't sure if he truly understood or not until Todd's older sister, Melissa, and her husband, Greg, arrived at our house later that week from their home in Michigan. They had visited since we'd moved into our... They haven't visited since we'd moved in our new home, and David was giving them a tour of the house. When they came to Todd's in my bedroom, Greg asked, And is this your mommy and daddy's room? No, David answered. This is just my mommy's room now because my daddy is gone. For days following September 11th, I could tell that David was trying to understand what had happened to his daddy. It was a reality that none of us wanted to accept. Occasionally, David would get what he thought was a good idea. If daddy's plane had hit a trampoline, mom, then nobody would have gotten hurt. It could have just bounced, bounced, and bounced back up into the air. How's a mom supposed to respond to that? On another day, David was playing with a toy airplane. He held the plane over the floor as though he were flying it through the room. Mommy, when we went to Disney World, our plane landed like this. David eased his plane down to the floor. When Daddy's plane landed, it went like this. David dropped his plane straight down to the floor. My heart dropped along with it. Sometimes I'd overhear David talking to himself or to someone else saying, most airplanes are safe, but Daddy's wasn't safe. Since then, we've had many conversations clarifying what dying means. 
And David has had many questions, some of which have nearly knocked the breath out of me at times. But one thing has utterly amazed me. David has never questioned the finality of Todd's death in this lifetime. One of his questions that was the most difficult to answer was why, if Daddy loved us so much, would he want to go and live with Jesus? Doesn't that have the echo of Paul's words? To depart and be with Christ is far better, but to be here with you now is more needful. I tried to explain to him that if given a choice that day, Daddy would prefer to have come home. Where he is right now is a great place, but if he could, he'd want to be with us at home. I told David, Daddy wanted to go to heaven someday because he knew that being together with God there would be better than anything that we can imagine here. But he wanted to finish being your daddy first. And it makes him sad that he couldn't finish that job. What happens when daddy is sad now, David asked. Well, it says in the Bible that in heaven God comes and wipes away all our tears and he reminds daddy that he will see all of us again and we'll all be in heaven together. That helps daddy to be very happy. We talked about a person who gets to make some important choices in life. When a person dies, those who love God choose to go where God is, and those who don't love God choose to go where God isn't. And that place is very sad because there's no love there, I tried to explain delicately. David seemed to consider my words. Then he looked back at me with all the innocence of childhood and answered, Mommy, when I die, I'm going to choose to come home. That's one of the most powerful testimonies that I've ever heard. Of two people, both Todd and Lisa Beamer, fixing their hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing their minds for action, whether it is imminent action to death or imminent action in explaining to your three-and-a-half-year-old son why daddy isn't coming back. Sober in spirit. Are you prepared for that? I trust that you are. Let's pray together. Father, we must be ready. Tell us to be ready. You warn us to be ready. There are pleas in the Bible to be ready. And Lord, I pray that each one of us is ready. Our minds are prepared. We're sober in spirit, mentally alert to understand that our hope must be completely fixed on the glorious grace of salvation that will culminate in our ultimate deliverance. Thank you for this wonderful testimony. Father, I pray that this dear woman and her writing ministry and her spoken word on radio and television would be the instrument that you would no doubt use for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people to become prepared for action, sober in spirit, fixing their hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for someone here, anyone, who does not have that hope. They don't know Christ. They don't have a relationship with Him. Oh, I pray that you would bring to the prayer room or have someone talk to a friend or a pastor or an elder in this place who would need to know how exactly to have this hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the instruction of parents to their children to teach them the Word of God from the earliest days. Thank you for a Christian college to teach young people the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for a faithful pastor who preaches 
the Word of God, the Lord's Prayer, so that in a time of need, one can draw upon that very Word. Thank you for faith. Thank you for hope. May all of us be prepared in our minds, sober in spirit, ready for the action that lies ahead, regardless of what it may be. And may we have the kind of strength and courage to say, come what may, let's roll. Thank you, dear Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.